0: All right. Okay, so this morning, um, I wanted to just introduce for us this sermon series called Unsung Heroes. And I wanted to start by giving us the definition of those two words. The definition of unsung, according to the Cambridge English Dictionary, is not noticed or praised for hard work, courage, or great achievements. So unsung is, is someone or something that is not given the recognition that maybe we feel like that thing or that person deserves. So I said, "Okay, that's the definition of unsung. What's the definition of a hero?" And so the definition of hero according to the Cambridge English Dictionary is a person who is admired for having done something very brave or having achieved something great. And I looked at these two definitions and I said, "In some ways it's almost oxymoronic for someone to be both unsung, who is not recognized for something great that they achieved, but also a hero at the same time, it doesn't make sense together, almost. But often, oftentimes we see this concept play out in our day-to-day lives. We see examples of people who aren't recognized day in and day out, but every single day they're doing great things to encourage people, to bless and to build up the community, And so when we look at and we think about this concept of unsung heroes, we want to be able to recognize, we want to be able to see, we want to study the lives of people in the Bible who they're not the Peters of the Bible, they're not the Moseses, they're not the faith giants that we typically think about. But their lives really demonstrate something about who God is in His heart that we can learn something about. And some of the reasons why we want to look at some of these quote unquote less significant people of the Bible is a couple of reasons. Number one is we want to grow in our understanding of Scripture. So often it's easy for us to focus on the faith giants, the people that we constantly go back to. Of course, we focus on Jesus, right? We want to study Jesus. But oftentimes when we look at other characters and their characteristics, it really helps us to see who Jesus is, because ultimately everyone points back to him. Second thing is we also observe examples of humility, This is tied in with the third example is that we learn from triumphs and failures. Because many of these people in the Bible that are quote unquote less significant oftentimes demonstrate examples or situations in their lives that were quite difficult. Some of them had successes. Some of them had failures. And we can learn through all of those situations. Fourthly, we're able to relate with their insignificance. I mean, some of us, I I know for myself when I think about studying about Jesus, Jesus is great. He's perfect. He's God. And so sometimes it's hard for us to relate with him. And so when we look into some of these people in the Bible who are not as significant or not given those pedestals, sometimes it's easier for us to relate and connect with their situations. And lastly, uh, we study these characters and these people because they direct us to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, everyone and everything in Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it all points us back to who Jesus Christ is. And so as we go through this series, I'm really looking forward to talking through some of these characters to help us to grow in our understanding of Scripture and ultimately help us to grow as heroes ourselves. And so we're going to go through a four-part sermon series called Unsung Heroes. Part one today, we're going to talk about Barnabas. Next week, we're going to talk about Hannah. And part three, we're going to talk about someone named Balaam. And then in part four, we're going to talk about Mordecai. And so if you don't know who these characters are, these people, uh, you might want to spend a little bit of time this coming week just reading up on some of the background, getting to know them, and then in the coming weeks we'll look more in-depth into their lives. So I just wanted to start this message uh, with a question, and we're going to focus on Barnabas this morning. Some of you may know Barnabas, some of you may know that he's quite associated with Paul. But I wanted to start with a question of what makes someone a hero in your eyes. As we're talking about this topic of unsung heroes, what makes someone a hero to you? What, makes they, what must they do? What must they accomplish or experience in order to be considered a hero? I, I think a lot of us, we immediately think of like Avengers, right? Marvel, and I still haven't watched Endgame, and so I don't know what 3000 means, and I'm so <laughs> afraid that someone's gonna spoil it for me. And so oftentimes we think of these big, like, action hero, these movies, and we think superhero is that kind of person that I would consider a hero. Some of us, we think more personally, we say, oh, I really see my dad as my hero, or this mentor figure in my life. He was my hero growing up. Regardless of what it is that we think or we consider, there are some common traits that almost every hero goes through. And I wanted to actually dissect and look at some of these characteristics and the cycle that a hero goes through. And I want to show us a video. It's actually made by Ted Ed. And it goes through the progression of what makes a hero. And as we look and understand about what makes a hero, that's going to help us to even explore and see Barnabas' life and how he was one of these unsung heroes. So let's watch this video together. All right. It's like inspirational, you know. We all want to go on our own adventures and stories now. And and one thing that I, I noticed and I looked at this video and I was like, in many ways it's true. When we think about not only the hero story, we think about Marvel and Avengers. Oftentimes when we see our own lives, there's a hero story in each and every single one of us. There's a journey, there's an adventure, there's a challenge, there's a task, there's a crisis, there's a resolution. And through that process, it really doesn't leave us the same in many ways. And when we think about being heroes in our own right. I think many of us, we shy away. We're saying, I, I, I don't want to be a hero. I'm just an ordinary person. I go through a lot of things and I fail. And it doesn't end up like in the movies. It doesn't end up where, you know, I get the girl and then everything looks happy at the end. Or I get the guy if you're the woman heroine. And this is why Barnabas' story is, is so Amazing. And it can speak to us. Because he was just an ordinary person. He wasn't the Paul of the Bible. And in fact, oftentimes he was overshadowed by Paul. When we think about the missionary journeys, we often, often think of it as Paul's missionary journeys. When we think of the suffering and the persecution, we, we think of it as Paul's suffering and persecution. When we think about Paul the Apostle, it's Paul the Apostle. It's not Barnabas the Apostle. But interestingly enough, Especially in the book of Acts, we see Paul and Barnabas, they're always mentioned together. But for whatever reason, Paul always gets the credit. And so when we think and we look into Barnabas' life, we want to see how someone as ordinary, as normal as Barnabas, overshadowed by the great Paul, how did his life really turn into a hero story that actually we can experience on a day-to-day basis? And it's not because he was so great. Or there were things that he did that were so amazing, but it was really because of what God did through his life. And I want us to look and to see his life as we look into our own lives, to see how we can be the people that God wants us to be. Ordinary people, or in, like in Hong Kong we say, small potatoes, right? But at the same time, used by God. And so I want to give us the one thing for this morning. The one thing is that those who become heroes are ordinary people who allow God to do extraordinary things. Those who become heroes are ordinary people who allow God to do extraordinary things. I want to share two facets or two aspects of how heroes see themselves that allow them to see God work in their lives in extraordinary ways. The first way that I want us, that heroes see themselves is heroes see themselves as ordinary. Heroes see, they are ordinary people and they see themselves Quite as ordinary people. Uh, we're going to actually go through and look through the book of Acts and jump around a couple passages. And so hopefully they'll be up on the screen. Also, you can follow along on our mobile app with the notes, and the passages should be there. Uh, we're going to skip through a couple books, a couple chapters through Acts, not a couple books, that would take too long. Um, but Acts 4, we're going to start reading verses 36 to 37. So uh, you can look it up on the mobile app or turn to someone next to you and hopefully they'll share with you. And just ask them kindly. Hopefully, they'll be nice. Okay? So, we're going to read Acts 4. Hopefully, you're there. Verses 36 to 37. It says, Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. As we look through this passage, we're going to focus on two aspects of how Barnabas saw himself as ordinary. The first aspect that we see is that he focused on his character. It was the character of an ordinary person. And in this passage in Acts 4, 36-37, we notice that Joseph is introduced as Barnabas immediately after the description of the early church. Immediately. So in 36, we say, see the word thus. Thus Joseph, blah, 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 he was introduced as Barnabas, and he sold a field, and he did this amazing thing. Thus is a really important word. This is kind of a side note that anytime you're studying the Bible, you want to take note of these connective words or these transition words that indicate something happened before that caused the next thing to happen. So when we see the word, the word thus, we want to look at what caused Barnabas or what context did Barnabas do what he did. So we're going to read the verses right before Acts and I'll read it for us on the screen. There's going to be some yellow highlights. And I think Pastor have been trying to get some audience participation. So let's try to read the yellow highlights and bold together. Okay, ready? ready. All right. Acts four verses thirty-two thirty-five in the ESV. It says, "Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus." and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's the context of Barnabas now giving and selling his possessions and giving it the proceeds to the apostles. And many of you might realize, well, this parallels the Acts 2 passage that in, in our life group communities that we emphasize. And we model everything that we do off of Acts 2. And Acts 4 is very, very similar. We see a picture of the early church of being one in heart, unified, all of them having everything in common. And we notice this idea of everyone together. It's not just a few people but we see the emphasis. It was the full number of people who believed. No one said that anything was their own. So that means everyone was communal about that. Great grace was upon them all. And that as many were owners or lands of houses, so all of those who had that were the ones who were selling them and bringing the proceeds to distribute to those who had need. And it's really interesting because oftentimes we think of some of these characters and some of these people of the Bible as exceptional. They're different. They're, they're these unique people that are so different than everyone else that that's what makes them really stand out. But when we look at this passage, we see Acts 4 is given a description of the early church, and it says, thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas. Barnabas is just one example of someone who did what he did, He's just an ordinary person. He was just living out the Acts community that all the other disciples, all the other followers of Jesus Christ were living out. There were probably many, many other people who were doing just what Barnabas was doing, that go unnamed, that we have no idea who they are. They're not written in the Bible for us to remember. They're not getting any recognition, any credit. But for whatever reason, Barnabas is just highlighted as one example of the work that God was doing in the church. I'm wondering, for some of us, do we see ourselves as ordinary people that God could really use in a powerful way? Do we see ourselves as one of those ordinary people that as we're ordinarily participating in the church, as we're ordinarily being challenged by God to take steps of faith, whether it's your your coming to life group every single week, for some of us, that's an ordinary step of faith that we need to take every single week. We had a, a really good uh, Covenant barbecue. It was, yes, it was yesterday. It was a kickoff meeting. And I just realized for families with children, with their busy schedules to come and just join together, it's a challenge. And just to come every single week is an amazing step just to be able to say, hey, I'm committed to this community. I want to invest in this community. I want to be part because that's what God is calling me to do. And that's an ordinary thing, but that many of us, we can do that demonstrates something extraordinary that God could use us somehow just by being present, just by participating. For others of us, it's just bringing refreshments at the time that you ought to bring it. Or it's having that birthday cake right in the moment, right in the day that that person's birthday is. Or just showing up to LCG. Just being there for that person, just lifting up a prayer Just saying what you'll, just doing what you say that you will do. There's so many things that every single day we just do ordinary things. That as we're living out this Christian life, we're doing the things that God is wanting us to do as a part of the body of Christ that can really make an impact on people. Just physically being there, just being faithful to the little things, it can really impact something. One other thing I wanted to mention in light of, all the things that we've been talking about recently, just giving reg- regularly, just making tithing, offering a weekly discipline and a blessing for the church, for many people who are coming for the first time, for us to be able to do things like Ignite, for us to be able to invest in things like Operation Campus Reach or City Reach into the future. That all takes resources, and as those who give and those who've been faithful and those who've been uh, regular and consistent week after week, those are the ones who God is really using to build up and bless the church. And so can we just actually give a round of applause for all those who are serving, who are giving faithfully? Let's just I just wanted to recognize them because so often we only highlight the special people, the ones who are on stage, the ones that we see very visibly, the leaders, but it's all of you who are participating on a weekly basis who are involved in church life, that are really building up the body of Christ. And that's something that we wanted to reinforce and that we even see in the life of Barnabas. And we notice, as we continue on, we notice that Barnabas is just a regular guy. I was looking at this and I realized, we noticed Barnabas, his original name was Joseph. I, I was like, my, I, I was just it was like as if I read the passage for the first time. Like I never knew Barnabas' name was Joseph. And I was like, can you imagine like in that old times, people were you know we know him as like Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and and other people are like, hey Joe, <laughs> like hey this guy's just his name is Joseph, and he's just like a regular Joe, everyday average Joe person who who just you know just does whatever, right? He was a regular disciple, and we noticed one thing that uh, he characteristics of who he was. Number one, he was a Levite, so he came from the Levitical uh, just clan or tribe of Israel. And during that time, it was interesting that he was just an average person because he could have put himself above many other Jews. The Levites were a little bit set aside by God specifically to minister, to support the priests who were the ones who managed all the priestly duties of interceding and communing with God and doing all the rituals that were considered greater. In fact, the Levites were often associated with the teachers of the law and during that time, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those were the ones who were lording it over the rest of the people, saying, look how holy I am compared to all of you. But Barnabas, he didn't, he wasn't one of those. He committed himself to Christ and he, just as like anyone else, he sold his possessions. He gave it to the poor. And we notice he didn't take his status or his title seriously like that. Second thing we see is that he was called the son of an encouragement. He was so encouraging that for whatever reason, even though his name was Joseph, even though everyone called him the average Joe, that the apostles, for whatever reason, he just became known as the son of encouragement. You know, I don't know if you know those people who, like, when you talk with them, they just feel so loved, right? Like, you just feel so loved. Like, as you're interacting with that person, like, you're like, wow, I just feel like, I could sprout wings and fly, you know, like, that's that's the kind of person that Barnabas was. He was just someone just so encouraging, so affirming that you just feel like, uh, you know, like a superhero every time you interact with them. You know, I don't know, um, I think maybe husbands can relate. Sometimes when your wife, like, encourages you and just says, like, you are, like, this person and I'm so encouraged by you and I'm so thankful to be married to you. Uh, you just feel like you could just fly and just like, you know that song, like, I believe, I can, you know, you're like, I can fly, you know, you just feel like a superhero and you just feel so warm and fuzzy inside. That was Barnabas, okay? <laughs> Barnabas was that kind of person to each single person. And it's interesting that he's called son of encouragement, that somehow he was nicknamed son of encouragement because who he was in his character, in the way that he carried himself, somehow led people to identify him as this extra uber-encouraging person. And it's interesting because oftentimes our name really displays or represents something about us. Oftentimes we say your life group name is your destiny. I think we have some amazing life group names this summer, yeah? Uh, we, have, <laughs> we have some very interesting life group names and your name is going to be your destiny? For better or for worse, right? <laughs> but oftentimes in the Bible, we do see that, where your name is your destiny. And, and what you're called oftentimes defines the characteristics that you have. I had a lot of nicknames growing up. Uh, my name is very easy to make nicknames out of because it's only two letters, just B, O, and I'm sure you could think of different things that, you know, you could turn that into. Uh, I was called things like Bozo the Clown. I was called Bow and Arrow. Uh, I was, uh, when I was really young, I think it was in like primary or middle school, some of my friends, well, I don't know if they were friends. Uh, some of my friends, <laughs> they called me B O. I I was like, why? What's B.O.? And I had no idea. And then I guess someone clued me in the, that means body odor. I was like, oh my gosh. And I felt so bad. I was like, oh, that's what everyone is referring to. So, it's, there's some good things and some not so great things because I was known for certain things. Uh, one thing that I was really known for in undergrad when I was in university, um, I had this nickname called emo <laughs> And you can imagine, like, what that means. If you don't know what emo means, it's just short for emotional. And so emo was pretty much, the reason I was called that was because I was the type of person, especially in my first two years, I, w- I would constantly fall asleep everywhere. Uh, I would kind of like not really want to be in large social settings. Like anytime we would have, uh, if you don't know already, I'm very, very highly introverted, right? So when there's a big group of people, like I'm always on the edge. And whenever there's like a large gathering, like I'm always wanting to pull out and just talk with one other person and not talk to anyone else because it's too intense for me. And that I would be that person in life group during refreshments not interacting with anyone else. I would go to the corner by myself and play guitar. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know that's none of you, okay? All right, but if it's some of you, then repent and come talk to everyone else during refreshments. And I realized because of what I did and because of my character, that's what I was known for. I mean, please, none of you. I hope none of you call your other people, like your life group members or your LCGs. Please don't call them emo blah, 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 okay, that's not nice. Not a good thing, okay? Even though it spoke to me, it's not a good thing. But I think as I was being called emo boy, I started to realize like, oh, why did they call me that? And I started to realize like a lot of the, the tendencies that I had, the, a lot of the things that I did, out of who I was, it came out because I was insecure about my social interaction with people. It came out because uh, oftentimes I was so busy and because I was so busy that every time I would come into a social situation, I would just be too tired to be able to interact with other people and to build friendships and build relationships. Everything was about me. Everything was about myself. Everything, especially when I wanted to play guitar, I was like, I, I want to learn guitar, even though this was the time to be able to build up and love on the life group community. And I realized, for worse, actually, that my nickname really defined or exposed or revealed the deeper character that I had inside of me. Fast forward a couple of years, uh, I, I matured a little bit. Uh, by my fourth year in university, I was really connected to uh, a group of uh, kind of like entrepreneurship society on campus. We were trying to start you know, companies and trying to help other students engage in entrepreneurship. And I really, I spent a lot of time with that group of people and uh, really got involved, and also, I was just trying to live out my faith in the context of Life Group and Church. You know, I would, I would try to take the messages seriously, all the next steps from Life Group. I would invest myself in learning to share my faith and be open about who I was as a Christian in whatever context I was, and the primary context was that entrepreneurship society. And for whatever reason, uh The members or the friends that I really grew close with, some of the closest people in that society, they started calling me spiritual guru or spiritual advisor, you know, so I went from emo bow to spiritual advisor. Of course, it was a different group of people, right? Church people called me emo bow, and then these people knew me as spiritual advisor. And I was like, why are you calling me spiritual advisor? It's not like I did anything special. I'm not a pastor, and I haven't had any seminary education well now I'm a pastor, but I didn't have any <laughs> seminary education at that point, so I was just really like you know I just asked them genuinely, like, why do you call me that?" And then, you know, like they started sharing like, you know it's because you're pretty open about your faith, and we can see that your spirituality is' not just a Sunday Christian thing. It's not just a label that you have, but it's something that you genuinely try to live out and you've experienced. And, and not to like boast about myself, but I realized that as I was maturing and as I was just doing the basic things of, of life group, doing the everyday things, participating in church, trying to reach out to my classmates, trying to reach out to some of my friends, I didn't feel like I was doing anything special or extraordinary. I was just taking what I learned from God, trying to implement that every single day into my life. And the result of that was people noticed. People saw something different people were able to identify some characteristic that I had or was growing in, that they gave me a name that really represented or exposed or revealed the characteristics that I had. And my question for us is how many of us have that kind of experience or have a name that really represents or reveals the character that we have? Not something that you do that's extraordinary, I think some of us, we have this weird mentality of we have to do something heroic or something great or something astounding for other people to really live out our faith or to really show people that we're Christian. But what if it's the everyday little things that you do that really show and demonstrate who you are and the faith that's living inside of us that represents that to the rest of the world around us? This is the question. How many of your friends who are not in church know that you're a Christian? How many of your colleagues that you work with every single day know that you're a believer, know that you go to life group, know that you're consistent in your faith? How many of us, when we go and we're saying, hey, I gotta go to this place, I'm hanging out with friends, they're like, oh, where are you going? Oh, you know, this group. What kind of group? Oh, it's a... Uh, a life group. What's a life group? Oh, you know, full of life. <laughs> <laughs> and you just leave it at that. But what would it be like if we were just who we were in everything that we did? We were just transparent and open about our faith. And we shared, you know, what we experience in life group. Why we go. What motivates us. What we aspire to. How God impacts our lives. Not in the big, crazy ways like, oh, I... I, I like gave 100% of my income and now I'm poor, but then God like miraculously gave me everything that I needed. I, I, for whatever reason, I, I feel like we, we, we feel like we need those kind of testimonies to be able to share anything. But what would it be like if we just shared the everyday things that we experience and let that be the demonstration of our character? Because it's our character that demonstrates to people who we are. And allows people to see the extraordinary work of God through us, not ourselves, but really points to God. That's the character of an ordinary person that allows these heroes to see themselves as ordinary. The second smaller point is that also that not only the character of an ordinary person, but the spirit filling of the ordinary person. I'm going to read for us Acts 11, verses 22 to 24. And this is now after Barnabas, after he's known as the son of encouragement. Now, after he's been known to the apostles, because he's been so encouraging, for whatever reason, the apostles decide to send him out to a church called in a place called Antioch. And this church was actually started because there was a persecution that arose. And we'll read a little bit more into that later. It says in Acts 11, verses 22 to 24, the report of this, this being the persecution and also the start of the church in Antioch, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Here we see Barnabas now supporting and spending time with the church in Antioch. And when we think about Barnabas, when we think about people, we oftentimes associate, like, heroes or these great people with specific, like, skills, talents, or abilities that they have, right? When we think about Jesus, we're like, Jesus was God, so he was amazing, you know? Or we're like, oh, Moses, he was, like, an incredible leader. He led all the Israelites, and he was just, like, this amazing person. Or Abraham, he was just, like, this baller person who, you know, was the king or the father of all the... the Not just the Israelites, but all peoples, right? all chosen peoples, even the father of the Ishmaelites and other groups of peoples. And we oftentimes associate tangible skills, like King David, he was an amazing king and he fought these battles. We're like, oh, you have to have some kind of amazing skill, talent, or ability to be considered heroic. But when we look at Barnabas, we don't see any of that. Not once in this passage does it show Barnabas was an amazing orator, He was an amazing teacher. He had all these abilities that somehow he used to build up the church. But what do we see? What are the traits that Barnabas is described with? First one is that he's a good man. He's just a good guy. And it refers back to his character. The second trait is that he was full of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a skill that he had. He was full of the Holy Spirit. It was something that God gave to him. The third one is that he is full of faith. I want to read this verse for us in the Amplified Version. It says, For Barnabas was a good man, privately and publicly. His godly character benefited both himself and others. And he was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith in Jesus the Messiah through whom believers have everlasting life. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Isn't that amazing that it wasn't something that he did. It wasn't something that he was so capable of. But the primary traits that Barnabas is known for that made him well-known was actually because of God. It was actually because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was actually because he was full of faith. What was he full of faith of? In Jesus Christ. My question is, are any of us less qualified or less able to be filled with the Holy Spirit or to have faith in Jesus Christ. No one. None of us are any less able. None of us are any less called. None of us are any less believers in Jesus Christ that made Barnabas somehow more of a Jesus Christ believer than us. It was the fact that God was working in him that he had faith in what God could do. Not faith in himself, but faith in what God could do that allowed him to participate in the work that God was doing in Antioch. I want to read another two passages for us that show us another angle of this in Acts 13, 1-3. It says, Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, so this is after Barnabas has been there for quite some time, and he brings Paul, who is also called Saul, there. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. And then I'll also read one more verse. So after they are sent off, they do this missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. They travel throughout the region, starting churches, seeing Gentiles come to know the Christ. It's some amazing uh, work that they're able to do. And then they come back, and they're reporting to the church all that God is doing. And Acts 15, 12, they're reporting, and this is what it happens. In verse 12, it says, and all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? That simply because Barnabas and Paul, they were filled by the Holy Spirit. I'm sure God prepared them, their past experiences, their background, to prepare them for the work that they were about to do. But primarily, what's focused on here is that they were filled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. He didn't say, set apart for me someone else. He said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. I'm going to fill them. I'm going to be with them. And we don't have time to go into chapters 13 and 14, but throughout that passage, we see the Holy Spirit leading them to go to different people, to talk to certain people among those regions, to see them come to know Christ. And they would report back. What are they reporting? All the signs and wonders that God had done among them. It wasn't the signs and wonders that Paul and Barnabas did. It was the signs and wonders that God did that allowed them to see what God did. And some of us were like, I can't be like that, or I don't see how that's possible. And we think about what really gave Barnabas this power. What what allowed Barnabas and Paul to accomplish the things that they were able to accomplish? Of course it was faith. But we're like I don't have faith, God. I I it's so hard for me to have faith. I I can't see it right now. I don't trust you. I feel separated. I I don't I just can't do anything right now. And my question for us is I'm wondering how many of us part of the reason why we still feel so far from God that we don't have faith, we're not connected to God right now, is because we haven't confessed our sins to God. In James, verses, uh, James chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, in the New Living Translation, it says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power, produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are. Yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. I mean, many of us, we think about Elijah as this great, incredible prophet, but James says here, he was a normal person. And and for us, those of us who we think we're just normal, ordinary people, we don't have the power to do anything, That Elijah here is an example where he prayed earnestly and God answered his prayers. Well, what separates us between Elijah and all the great things he did and just us feeling ordinary? What what hinders us from praying earnestly, asking God, please, would you do this in my life? Would you work? Would you connect with me? Would you allow me to feel like you're there and allow me to participate and allow me to see great things happen? In James, it says, confess your sins to one another. I'm wondering if it's a lack of confession. It's a lack of being honest with who we are. It's a lack of being humble and transparent about our shortcomings that hinders us from actually having the faith and the earnestness of our hearts to pray and actually see God work in our lives. Some of us, we look at we look at pastors, we look at missionaries, we, we look at examples of Elijah and Barnabas and Palmer, like, whoa, they're, they're too, too holy for me. Some of us, we, we think about our leaders, where they're, like, they're, they're like a different type of breed, you know, they're a different species, like, I don't know why, how they could possibly spend so much time in church, you know, my life is not like that. Some of us were like pastors, they're like, you know, they must, there must be the special like pastor like anointing and calling and process that they go through. And, and for me, I'm like, okay, I just became a pastor not too long ago. And I'm walking through, like, now I live in the PolyU dorms, which is great. And I'm walking through the PolyU dorms, and sometimes I, like, I'll see some PolyU students, and they'll, like, they'll be like, they'll look like a deer in the headlights, like, Pastor, why are you here? I'm like, I'm going home to sleep. Okay, like, I live here, you know? And, and I'm like, this is just, I'm an ordinary person, you know? I need to sleep too, right? And, and, and I don't know, sometimes it boggles our minds that like pastors and leaders, they do ordinary things like go shopping, right? Or like watch TV or eat food. You know, I love food. If any of you have extra food, please give it to me. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And, and I think for some of us, we like put, we, we separate this group of people because they have a title Because they have certain responsibilities or roles, and say, "Oh, they must be holier than me, and therefore I cannot do anything great." Or God doesn't connect me with me in the same way because I'm not not like one of that, or not like one of them. And oftentimes, especially whether it's an LCG or life group, we find it really difficult, whether it's to challenge or even keep some of our leaders accountable. And we get shocked when a leader shares, like, "Oh, like some of their sins." Like, "Oh my God, you sin." I didn't know that. We sin, okay? Cat's out of the bag. We sin, I sin. And, and that's the amazing thing about the body of Christ. That's the amazing thing about the gospel is that we are all alike under sin. That every single one of us, we are depraved. And without God, without Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for us, we would all be separated from God. But it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ and having faith in him that allows us all of us, to have a relationship with God. I, as a pastor, may have a different role than you. I may have a different title than you. I may have, I don't actually have more time than you, but I may spend more time than you studying the Bible or praying or whatever because of my role or spending time in church because of my title, because of what God has called me to do. But we are all alike. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all a royal priesthood, a holy nation that God has called us to be ministers of his gospel. And so if any of us, we feel like less qualified or less adequate or less connected to God, then that is the lie of Satan in our minds, convincing us that we are not able to do the great things that others are able to do. And I'm wondering if it's maybe some of us, we have a false view of leaders or maybe some of us, we just haven't been transparent or honest about our sin, about our depravity, to realize that it's only once we connect, confess our sins, we bring that to God and also to other brothers and sisters in Christ who will lovingly restore us, that that's what really allows us to be filled with God's Spirit. That's what really allows us to be connected and for God's Spirit to really work in us in every single way. I don't know how many of you, like, you're, you're, you've sinned, and you're not doing well, you're struggling with different things, are those the times that we really feel most excited to do God's work? Are those the times that we feel most empowered, that most joyful to go to life group, to, to do the things that we're called to do on a ministry team? No. It's those, and that's why God calls us. He says, confess your sins. Ask people to pray for you, to support you. And as we confess our sins, as we're honest, we allow Jesus to take the burden that we cannot take. Those are the times that then we feel restored, we feel forgiven, we feel grateful, we feel empowered. And those are the most amazing moments that we're able to minister to people and do God's work. It's not the times that we feel like we're so great and we've done all these amazing things, but it's when we feel most weak, most broken, but most loved. Those are the times that we're most effective in our faith, and that's why even Barnabas, as we look at his life, that was his story. So let's not try to compensate with doing things according to our own ability, but let's believe that God is using us even in our weaknesses, even in our sin. As we confess that, he's filling us with his spirit. His spirit indwells within us, and he's gonna use us. Samuel Chadwick, in his book, The Way to Pentecost, he talks about this. He says, confusion and impotence are inevitable when wisdom and resources of the world are substituted for the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. The presence of the Spirit is vital and central to the work of the church. Nothing else avails. Apart from him, wisdom becomes folly and strength, weakness. Scholarship is blind to spiritual truth till he reveals, worship is idolatry till he inspires. Preaching is powerless if it be not a demonstration of his power. Prayer is in vain unless he energizes. Human resources of learning and organization, wealth and enthusiasm, reform and philanthropy are worse than useless if there be no Holy Ghost in them. The church always fails at the point of self-confidence. When the church is run on the same lines as a circus, there may be crowds, but there is no Shekinah. Isn't that a powerful thought? That no matter what we aspire to do, if we are not connected with God, if we are not totally, humbly transparent about our weaknesses, about our depraved, sinful nature, and we somehow think that by doing more that we're going to accomplish more, unless we are exposed and convinced that we cannot do anything apart from God, we will never experience the power of God, that God so dearly wants to demonstrate in us and through us. And I love this quote because he he talks about not just individuals, but he talks about the church. That we as a collective body of Christ, if we somehow think that our works or our deeds or our abilities are going to be what demonstrates to people that God is good, then we are sorely mistaken. But it's only the power of God working through our weaknesses, through our failures, through our sin. That his love and grace are on display to the world. And how about us? How many of us we struggle with this day in and day out? I'm wondering how many of us there's unconfessed sin that we're harboring right now. And we feel so far from God right now. And we're trying to do all the good things. We're trying to make it up by praying. We're trying to make it up by reading the Bible. We're trying to make it up by being a good Christian but you feel farther and farther and farther from God than you ever did before. I'm wondering if some of us, we're just trying to do church, do all the right things. We're trying hard, so hard on our own abilities. And totally forget that. That's not the gospel at all. It's really when God reveals and shows our weaknesses and he shows his power in spite of us that we're able to experience that power. And so as we talked about, this is the filling of the Spirit for these ordinary people. So heroes, they not only see themselves as ordinary, but now I want to talk about the second point, which is that heroes see failure through the gospel. Heroes see failure through the gospel. I think for me, when I talk about failure, it's a really personal struggle because I think growing up, I would say that if you asked me in my first year of university, and you ask me, how many times have I really failed in life? I was like, you know, not really. I was really proud, and I still am proud in many ways. But I was really proud when I was a first year in university. Because I look back on my life, and I'm like, oh, I haven't failed that much. You know, I was a pretty good kid. I did well. I um, aced all my SATs, my uh, AP tests, which I think is, like, equivalent U.S. equivalent for, like, A-levels or, like, IB program. And I remember, what well, there was... uh there was a tension that I always had with failure, especially growing up uh, with my family, was this, uh, this kind of idea, I'm like, can never fail or not allowed to fail. And I think I've shared parts of this story before, but when I was in, in high school, uh, SATs is kind of like the entry-level test to get into college. And if I didn't do well in my SATs, my parents were really afraid that I wouldn't be able to get into the college that uh, they wanted me to get into. And... I remember just having arguments after arguments after arguments with my family, with my parents about, like, just let me fail, you know, just let me, like, just... Bomb my SATs, not can do a good university, and then see what life brings me. Of course, I'm like super naive, right? And I'm like this 16, 17-year-old kid, and my parents, of course, were like, no, you can't do that, right? Like, your your university is gonna impact what kind of education that you get and what kind of job that you're gonna get in the future. But I was like so sad, I'm, like, just let me fail, you know, just like like I just wanna learn the hard way. <laughs> and it's and it's so interesting because like even though I said it like that. Failure was an incredibly difficult thing for me to, like, deal with, and it was actually later that, uh, that year or the next year, I actually experienced, like, a big failure. I mean, the big failure for me was not becoming an editor-in-chief of the newspaper, of the high school newspaper. <laughs> I considered that, like, a, a huge failure, and uh, that, that brought out emo Bo in that moment, and I remember, like, walking around the high school in, like, a really emo way. Everyone else was, like, hanging out and playing with their friends. I was just walking around the lockers, like... What was me? Like, what is my life? I didn't get editor in chief and I can't go to the university I want to. Um, and I just realized I just could not deal with failure in a healthy way. I just was not able to process anything that did not go according to my plan or the control that I wanted to have over my life. And I, and I just had such a, and so therefore, even though I told my parents, like, just let me fail and just let me do all this kind of stuff. I was actually very obedient as a kid. I did everything that they wanted me to do because I also never wanted to fail. Because I never, I also felt like failure was never an option for me. And it wasn't until I uh, experienced God that it really helped me to see failure in a different lens. And as, as we, as we talk about seeing failure through the gospel, I think this is such an important thing for us to be able to recognize and understand as a key trait of someone that God really uses as a hero even as an unsung hero, as an ordinary person. And so I want us to look through even Barnabas' life and how did he see failure, failure through the gospel in people's lives. So let's read Acts uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 26 to 27. It says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. And he is referring to Paul, who is also known as Saul. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So here we see Barnabas taking Paul who uh, was a monstrous failure in the eyes of many Christians because he was persecuting them. He was killing them. He went church to church, house to house, uh, killing and and taking them, arresting them because they were kind of like the sect of Judaism that they thought was dangerous. Later on in Acts 11, we see Barnabas doing something similar again, Acts 11, verses 25 to 26. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Tarsus is Saul's hometown, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Key word, Antioch, remember that. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. When we look at these two passages here, we notice that all the believers in Jerusalem were afraid, but only Barnabas stood up for Paul. Only Barnabas. They were all afraid. In that verse in Acts 9, 26, it says, they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Because Paul experienced Christ on the road to Damascus. He started teaching and doing all his Christian things in Damascus, they didn't have WhatsApp back then. They didn't have like, you know, Snapchat where they could be like, hey, bro, I heard Paul accepted Christ. Praise God. Yo, that's amazing. You know, and I guess the people in Jerusalem, you know, I guess news traveled by horse or something like that. So they didn't get the memo that Paul was a believer. Right now we hear it immediately like, oh, this person accepted Christ. Praise God. And you're like, how did you know? You know, you're like, that's kind of freaky. So uh, it's different. It's a different time. And they were all afraid except Barnabas. And and what Barnabas did was really interesting. He took the time to know Paul's testimony. It says in that verse that Barnabas took Paul, brought him to the apostles, and Barnabas was the one who declared to the apostles what Paul experienced. Somehow Barnabas knew Paul's testimony. Barnabas somehow believed and understood that Paul's testimony was credible. And he saw past Paul's previous failures. I think that's amazing. I think just purely just on a, on a, on a level of seeing someone who was a murderer, someone who did crazy things, being able to stick up for someone who everyone else would shun, everyone else would be afraid of. For Barnabas to stick his reputation on the line for someone like Paul is incredible. But let me make the connection for us because it gets even crazier. In Acts 8 verses 1 to 3 in the ESV, it says, and this is a little bit farther back when Paul was still destroying the church. It says, uh, Stephen was executed by stoning and Saul approved his execution. So in Acts 8, one to 3 and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then in Acts 11, verse 19, it continues this story of the persecution and scattering. It says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word to no one except Jews. So let's put all the pieces together. I wanted us to see this picking from different passages in Acts so we can understand the context of why it is that Barnabas bringing Saul to the apostles and then bringing Paul to Antioch is so crazy. If we look in this passage, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Immediately after Stephen was executed, what happened? There was a persecution that broke out. And the people started spreading out to all these other places, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and then that place called Antioch where did Barnabas bring Paul to? To Antioch. And we we live in, this is in an age of without WhatsApp, right? So who knows what the Antioch believers thought of Saul when, when Barnabas brought him to Antioch? We don't know exactly why the apostles sent Saul to Tarsus, his hometown. Maybe There weren't enough people who were supportive of Paul being a Christian, so they said, maybe Paul, you should go off to your hometown and just kind of be there. We don't trust you to be in Jerusalem where most of the Christians are. But Barnabas, what does he do? He goes to Tarsus. He looks for Saul. He sees something in Saul. He knows Saul's past background. He knows his history. He knows his failure. It's not like Barnabas doesn't know how many people Saul probably murdered. He knows that. But for whatever reason, Barnabas sees something in Saul, in Paul. He sees past his failure. And not only does he see past his failure, but he's willing to take Paul or Saul, who's a murderer, to Antioch, the very place that people were running away from people like Saul, who was murdering the church. How many of us will be willing to stick up for someone who's failed like that? And not only stick up for someone like that, but stick your own reputation on the line for someone who's failed in that kind of way. I'll say it's hard, even for myself, to associate myself with a murderer, someone who's killed fellow Christians. I think it would be very hard. And for many of us, it's so difficult for us to see past others' failures. So many of us, we judge each other based on the merits of what we've done or what we haven't done. From something so small as like, oh, you didn't send your soap out today. You're such a bad Christian. To other bigger things like, oh, you forgot to bring the birthday cake. Or I can't believe you did that heinous sin. Or I can't believe you gossiped about that person. Or I can't believe you, you're like living this double life. And instead of restoring, instead of believing in that person, instead of seeing the gospel in their lives, what do we do? We disassociate with them. We exclude them. We judge them. And I'm wondering if disunity and disagreement and contention within the church is catalyzed because of that attitude that we have. And one of the saddest things is the reason why we do this oftentimes is because we cannot stand even our own failures. It's because if we're honest with ourselves, we see our own brokenness, we see our own sins, that we don't even see our own failures in light of the gospel. That we look at ourselves and we're like, well, I've done this before. My past is so checkered. It's so littered with past hurts, past sins, things that have been done to us. Some of us, we've experienced rape or, or different things like abuse. And we blame ourselves for that. It was my fault that that happened. And because that's something that we cannot forgive ourselves for, we cannot receive the grace of God for, we cannot forgive others for, then we judge anyone else who does anything remotely similar to what we've experienced before. Some of us, we failed in so many other ways. We've been hurt by others in the church for excluding us. We've done things to hurt others, to cause them to leave, to cause them to turn away from Christ. We've cheated, we've lied, we've stole. And in all of that failure, we just haven't been able to see the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, instead of you bearing the brunt of all the consequences of sin, it's on Christ that bears the brunt of all of that. And I want to encourage all of us, no matter what failures that we've been through, no matter what circumstances, what things have happened in our lives, Jesus Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to take all of that on the cross to give us new life, to give us new hope, to demonstrate that he not only loves us, but he is adopting us into his family. He wants to associate with us. Jesus is the greater Barnabas in this sense. He takes us from our hometowns. He takes us from our brokenness. He takes us from every issue that we've been part of, that we've experienced, every heartbreak. He takes us and he brings us to a new place that he wants to use us to demonstrate the gospel to other people. How many of us, we see that, that every failure, every crisis, every brokenness that you've experienced, God wants to redeem that and use it for something greater. If only we would see our failures in light of the gospel, in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, that he took everything, he bore the punishment so that we don't have to. I think Paul experienced this in a personal way. And when I read this verse, I don't know, it just moved me because I I realized what Barnabas did for Paul completely changed Paul's life. And Paul, he credits God, but it was God who used Barnabas to work in such a powerful way. I want to read 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 16 for us. This is Paul's confession, and somewhat of a testimony of even though he was sinful, God, how God redeemed him. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. Paul's referring to all the people he murdered, all the people he killed, all the good Christians that he destroyed because of his zeal. but I receive mercy mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul experienced the grace of God. And God used Barnabas to help him to experience that. It didn't matter what Paul did in the past. There was nothing that Paul did that God's grace could not cover over. And it was Barnabas' privilege to be used. Not because he was so great. Not because he had all these skills. Not because he was a perfect Christian. Not because he was like perfect in his soap. Or that he loved everyone perfectly. God used Barnabas because Barnabas was open and willing and available. And he had faith in Jesus Christ more than anyone else, more than anything else. That allowed him to minister to the greatest missionary in the world. And God used Paul to reach... I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people planting churches all over Greece and Macedonia and Asia to save people who never deserved the gospel. I'm wondering how many of us, we know people that God has used for us to demonstrate the gospel to us, even though we were so undeserving. We failed in so many ways. We weren't looking for God. God came looking for us. And He sent people your way to love on you, to care for you, to demonstrate how good Jesus Christ is to you. And I'm wondering how many of us now we can be that same help to someone else. Because we've experienced the gospel in that way. Because we've received mercy even though we didn't deserve mercy. Because we got hope, even though we didn't deserve any hope. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Clovis Chappelle in Sermons on Biblical Characters, he says, whatever failure you and I make of our lives, we do not make because God forces us to do so. In whatever way we go wrong, we do not do so because God planned that we should. We do it because of our own willfulness and wicked rebellion against God. Our failures, it's our responsibility, that we have a choice to either dwell in it, to somehow think that we're responsible for it ourselves, or we could turn from our own willfulness and willful wicked rebellion, and we can say, you know what, God, I'm here, I'm willing to receive your grace, I'm willing to trust you, I'm willing to humble myself, to say, I'm not going to try so hard on my own anymore. But I want to know the good news of Jesus Christ, just as Barnabas did, just as Paul did. Because that's the greatest message in the world that will transform even the hardest of hearts, even the most broken of lives. And that's why even connecting this to Jesus, when we look at Jesus' life, if we didn't know the resurrection, we would say Jesus' life was a failure. The Pharisees, when Jesus was on the cross, they said, save yourself. If you're really the son of God, save yourself. And he didn't. And many of us were like Jesus was a failure. But it's exactly through that failure that God demonstrated the greatest miracle in the universe. And the centurion who was there at that moment, he said, surely this man was the son of God. It was a centurion. He didn't even need to know the resurrection. But he knew at that moment, Jesus was the Son of God, and he put his faith, we don't know exactly for sure, but he recognized that Jesus was the Son of God, somehow. And I want to challenge and encourage of us, let's recognize Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, as our Redeemer, as our hope, and it's only as we do that are we going to be able to be the unsung heroes, the ordinary people that allow God to do extraordinary things, That's why the one thing is that those who become heroes are ordinary people who allow God to do extraordinary things. I want to give us some next steps for us, some practical things in light of what we talked about this morning. The first is invite people into your life to help you grow in your character. Uh, One of the things that I love about summer life groups, and I think all across the board, every life stage, whether it's you're in campus life groups, whether you're in city life groups, Focus, or even Covenant, uh, we're doing uh, separate husbands and wives life groups uh, at least for three out of the four weeks, is that these are amazing opportunities for people to get into each other's lives, to love on one another, to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I want to support you. I want to help you grow in your character because it's really the, the, the everyday things, the character that we have that really allows people to see God's work. And it's not an overnight change. It's not just you read one Bible passage and then things change, but it's really God's grace that allows us to change little by little every single day. But really the most powerful way is through community. That's why we emphasize community. That's why we emphasize life fruit, is to invite someone into your life to say, hey, I know I need to grow in certain ways. Can you help point things out? If we're humble enough to say that, I really believe God is going to help us to grow this summer. And the second thing is initiate to confess your sins to others. The worst thing is when someone else hears about someone or something that you did and they have to bring it up to say, oh, hey, well, I heard this from someone else and I'm confronting you about it. That's usually not the best route because oftentimes what happens? We get defensive, we try to excuse ourselves, and oftentimes we end up you know, just agreeing to disagree. But I want to challenge us to initiate to take it upon ourselves and say, I sinned, I messed up. I need God's grace. And so number one, yes, confess your sins to God. But there's something deeper that happens when you confess your sins to one another. That was the James verse that we read. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because that's when you p- confess to one another, God uses that other person to restore you, to remind you of the gospel when you cannot remember it yourself. And lastly, inspect your failures with the gospel. Let's look through all the past things. I know some of us, maybe we're, we've just been stagnant in our faith and we just can't get over this hump or this struggle or this past thing. I'm wondering if we can relook at, inspect the different things that have happened in our past and say, God, how does the gospel apply in this situation? Many of us know we've been talking about gospel fluency and we've been trying to practice this in our lives. And if you don't know what it is, go talk to your life group leaders. Ask them, how can I learn to be fluent in the gospel in every area of my life, especially my failures? How can I see every mistake, every hurt, every brokenness in light of who you are, in light of Jesus who died on the cross and rose again from the grave and ascended to the heaven? How can I see all my failures in light of that? And I really believe as God is helping us to break through in some of those strongholds, that's going to help us to grow in an incredible way. So let's stand together as we close. feel like God has been speaking to many of us and I think instead of giving us a prompt or specific guidance on how to respond, I just want to give you the time just to respond to God. I don't, I don't know what God is speaking to you, I just believe that the Holy Spirit is ministering to each and every single one of us right now. And so whether you need to just pray on your own, you, you need to kneel, you need to lift your hands, uh, if you need just to look up a verse that God is speaking to you about, just do that. And I just want to pray over us right before I give some time for us to respond to whatever God is speaking to us about. So um, let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here in our church. I pray for each and every single soul that you love and you care for. That you've died for. That you gave your son for. It wasn't a, a small thing. Lord, we're sorry that sometimes we we minimize your cross. We've been so conditioned by church and Christian culture that it doesn't mean much to us anymore. And so we're sorry for that. Lord, we're asking for your spirit to work in us and to minister to us. Turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. That everything that we've experienced, all the hurt and the brokenness, the failures that we've had, the character that we need to work on, Lord, fill us with your spirit so that we will... Be the ordinary people that you want to work in extraordinary ways. Lord, let us not be satisfied with the mediocre, with a lukewarm Christian life. But Lord, let us experience you in a powerful way that we will follow in the example, in the footsteps of Barnabas and see how you use ordinary people for ordinary, extraordinary things. So Lord, help us to respond. Speak to us. Lord, let your spirit, release your Holy Spirit right now in the name of Jesus so that each of us can experience you personally. So we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Go ahead, whatever you need to do, you need to pray on your own. You need to kneel, need to sing a new song, need to look up a Bible verse. Just go ahead and do that. Just respond in whatever way that God is causing to or moving in you. So let's just pray and respond together.